Please stand for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8, and chapter, through chapter 6 to verse 12. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When good incre- goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing from his toil, for his toil, that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats. In darkness and much vexation, in sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Chapter 6. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he cannot, and he has no burial. I say that this is a still, that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. 
Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the man have who knows have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is. And that is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage of man to man? For who knows that who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? This is the word of God. I think we should clap for Morgan for reading that whole text. Wow. It's a long scripture today. Marathon perseverance. Hey, as we're continuing our study of the biblical book of Ecclesiastes, I would like to start today with a question for you to consider. Here's the simple question. What is your highest value in life? What do you value the most? Or you could put it a little bit differently. What is most important to you? Or you could say it like this. What's your top priority in life? I just want to think about that. Maybe pray that God will give you insight to this question. If you're having a hard time identifying what that is, you could ask some related questions like, What is it that drives your decisions? What fuels your desires? And or your fears. What I'm trying to get at with these questions is that help us think about the fact that all of us are going to have something of ultimate importance in our lives. Something's going to be the most important. And whatever we make ultimate in our lives, it's going to drive the direction of our lives. Another way to say this is whatever your heart loves the most is going to drive your life. We're devoted to something. Another way to say this is that whatever we believe about God, all of us have a functional God in our life. Something of ultimate significance that we love the most that drives us. We have a functional master in our life. Now, the problem with most masters is that they treat you like a slave. Most masters beat you. They exploit you. But the gospel tells us there is one master who does the exact opposite. The true God of the world who revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He is master. He is Lord. But he's a different kind of master than we're used to encountering. Instead of exploiting us, he gives his life for us. He died on the cross for our sins. And instead of enslaving us, he actually sets us free. 
That's what we were talking about. That's what we were singing about a moment ago when we said there's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. So everybody say, Jesus sets us free. Jesus sets us free. When the Bible warns against devoting your life to false gods repeatedly, one of the reasons it does that is that God loves us and God knows that if we devote our lives to him, we'll have freedom. And joy and eternal life. But if we make anything else ultimate in our lives, ultimately that thing, that false God, that false master is going to destroy us. Now, in the world and in our culture, there's lots of things competing to be the ultimate thing in people's lives. Lots of people devote themselves to um, becoming really comfortable. Everything in life is driven by that. Comfort is the functional God. Lots of people devote themselves into success. I've got to achieve success. Something that makes me feel significant. Perhaps the most dominant religion in America is the religion of self. Self is just the center. But one of the all-time competitors in every human society to still the place that belongs to Jesus as the false god that's ultimate in our lives is money and the stuff that money can buy, and the status that money can give us. Lots of people live for money. And I just want to say, if you live for money, like if you live for any other false god, that'll make you a slave. That's why Jesus said so much about money. I'm going to read you one verse from Jesus. In in Luke chapter 6, Jesus had been teaching his followers some important principles about money. And Jesus is not anti-money. As a matter of fact, we're going to talk about if Christ is our master then money can become a a powerful tool that we can use to do good, bring joy and blessing into life. But the problem is, instead of Jesus being our master, a lot of us make money as our master. And in the context of discussing this, Jesus says this. This is Luke chapter 6, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You've got to choose. Now, the, the text, the long, powerful, beautiful, complicated text that Morgan Curry persevered to read to us a moment ago, this text in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and 6 is here to help us understand the wisdom of what Jesus said. Because if money is our master, if money is our functional God, the ultimate thing in our lives, then money will destroy us. So the point of our sermon today, which Ecclesiastes is going to help us understand, is that money is a horrible God. That's right. Money is a terrible God. And one way we know that is money may solve some problems, but money also gives us new and different problems. A philosopher from the 90s once said, more money, more problems. (laughs) Let's look at Ecclesiastes 5, verses 11 and 12. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now, I want to start off by saying, if we are poor, money can solve some of our problems. But the book of, well, the book of Proverbs and our own life experience make that point clear. 
We need some money to survive. But as we gain more money, we start gaining more problems. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, listen, I'm broke. I know about broke people problems. I could do with some rich people problems. <laughs> but I hope by talking about this, by looking at some rich people problems, hopefully we might get the idea it's not such a good idea after all. Think about this. <laughs> when you get more money, you don't just get more money. When you get more money, you get a bunch of fair weather friends who think it's their job to help you spend your money and enjoy your wealth. Now, you know that if you got a new TV, you become the host for everybody's, pro- everybody's parties. You got a new car, you just became chauffeur. You got a new truck, you're now everybody's mover. Lord have mercy. Come on. That was real. Can I get an amen from this side of the room? <laughs> Rich people problems. How about this one? When you get more money, you get more stuff. When you get more stuff, you got to spend more money to have some place to put your stuff and to protect your stuff. We know that on a small level. If you get a new phone, you got to buy, buy a case to put that phone in. If you buy a new car, you got to buy some more insurance to make sure that car is taken care of. If you get a new house, you got to get, get, get a new alarm system with some fancy cameras to make sure you know who's in your house. Now, what we're talking about is when you get more money, you have increased pressure Increase pressure to make sure that you keep the status that you get when you have that money. So you can't shop at the same stores anymore. You got to shop at more expensive stores. You can't live in the same neighborhood anymore. You got to live in a more expensive neighborhood. And if you follow that advice, you end up with increased property taxes and some homeowner association fees, which you don't necessarily want. When you get more money, you get more stuff. When you get more money, you buy more stuff. And this cycle of consumption continues that actually will become an addiction. That's why there's a lot of rich people who commit suicide because they can't deal with the pressure. These are problems. But what the text tells us is if you're just a hard-working person who's content with what you have, you can sleep well at night. But you have a lot of money, you're going to stay awake worrying about what's up with your stuff. So the sage asks us, what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? If you get more and more, you become less and less able to enjoy your stuff, and you've got to worry about watching it and making sure nobody else is going to get it. So if you're thinking about devoting yourself to the God of money, we want to encourage you and say, with more money comes more problems. Here's the second reason the text says, if you make money ultimate in your life, that's a bad idea. And basically, we could summarize the point like this. If you put your trust in money... Money is going to cause you harm. If you make money what you're looking to for security, it's going to hurt you. Let me show it to you in your bulletin or in your Bible. You can look. Ecclesiastes 5. I'm going to read you verses 13 and 14. It says, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Okay, so this person got money, but instead of helping, it hurt him. We're going to talk about how. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. He and he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Now, in this little passage, we're told the story of a man who has a son and the man somehow got a lot of money. Doesn't tell us how he got it. Maybe he worked really, really hard to provide for his family and accumulated some money. Or maybe he inherited it or something else. I don't know. But he's got a lot of money. And 
What it said that he did with it is he kept it. In other words, he didn't use it. He didn't give it away to help people in need. He didn't take his son on a great vacation to make a lot of memories together. He didn't even, apparently, buy a big house and lots of things for them to enjoy. He just kept it because he was getting his security, his sense of stability out of having that money. And eventually, the problem is, if, if you're putting your security in money, it's never enough. Because there's always more of life that can hit you and you need more money. And so, it's, instead of spending it, eventually keeping it isn't enough and he goes and invests it. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Take money to make more money. But he goes and invests it and whatever his investment venture is, it goes bad. And he lost everything. He lost it all. He can't enjoy his money and he can't use it to bless his son. Perhaps he was working hard for that son anyway. If you keep reading the story and the verses that follow, it seems like he's probably neglecting this relationship with his son. But in the name of providing for his son, he's maybe lost that relationship and now he's lost the money. He can't give an inheritance to his son. Here's the point of the story. If you put your hope in money, that's going to go really poorly. If you're looking for security, stability in life from money, that's going to be a problem. Now listen to me, friends. There are some people in the room who are doing this right now. Your life is driven by the fear of, what if I'm not going to be able to provide? And right now, your wheels may be turning. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. But I still got to pay bills. I still got to take care of my family. I still got to do this stuff, which is why Jesus said, haven't you seen the, the grass in the fields? It doesn't work hard or store up or save, but your father takes care of it. And how much more is your father going to take care of you? Which means if we know the true and living God, here's what you can hear. You don't have to depend upon money for your stability because God's going to take care of you. So everybody turn to your neighbor and say, God's got you. The real God's going to take care of you, but money is a horrible God. Not only does money hurt you, but money can hurt other people. Listen, the love of money, we learn from this text, fuels the engine of oppression in the world. Now this is sad, and I want you to pay close attention. Look at verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. Here's the point. When you see the poor hurt or exploited, which we see all around us, if our eyes are open, it may not mean that there's some evil person who is plotting to make every poor person's life miserable. What's probably happening is everybody is just a little bit greedy. In the context, what we're saying is this. You're a farmer. You've got to pay taxes to a landowner. That landowner has to pay taxes to a governor who has to pay taxes to a king. If everybody is a little bit greedy then you as a farmer are going to have to pay a lot of taxes. That's the idea. Taxes aren't bad. The Bible says if uh, taxes are collected and they do good in the community, that's great. But we're talking about disproportionate expense on the least of society. Now, if we want to bring that into our context, here's what we think about. You work on the floor of a national supermarket. You report to a customer service manager who reports to a support manager, who supports to an assistant manager, who reports to a store manager. That store manager reports to a district manager, 
reports to a regional vice president. That regional vice president reports to an executive vice president who reports to a vice, to, to a president CEO. The president CEO reports to a board of directors who report to their stakeholders. That's a lot of levels. If everybody is just a little bit greedy, just a little bit, I want just a little bit more than my cut, then that floor associate is getting hammered and cannot pay bills for their family, can't take care of their family. What he's saying is that the love of money fuels this engine of oppression. This has caused us to reflect because all of us, we look deep inside of our heart. We would say that, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit greedy. I want a little more than my cut. Money is a horrible God, friends. So we've heard several reasons already why, why money is a horrible God. You think it's going to solve all your problems, but you get it. It solves some of them, gives you new problems. You think you can depend on it, you can trust it, but if you put your trust in it, it can turn around and hurt you. And the love of money, greed, fuels this engine of oppression in the world. But now we're going to add another reason why money is a horrible God, which is one of the main points of this text of Ecclesiastes. So we're going to soak in it for a minute. Here's the, the basic thing. Money cannot satisfy the human soul. The status that money gives can't satisfy the human soul. The stuff money buys can't satisfy the human soul. Money's just not enough. We see this in several places in the text. Let me show you one. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. Look at it. It says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Now, again, I want to clarify. This is not saying that money isn't useful or that it can't solve some problems or that it can't be a good tool to, that we can use to bless people. Listen, one of the great reasons that Christ Community Church, our little congregation, has been able to disproportionately do some cool things to bless people in the community, even though we're a small church, is that there's some really godly people with a lot of money who have given to support wonderful things like the after school program. Jared Leaves or St. Paul's Community School or Christ Community Health Coalition. Listen, if God's given you a lot of money, give thanks. We're going to talk about uh, how, to, how to view that rightly. But what it's saying here is if you're looking to satisfy your soul with money or the status that money gives or the stuff money can buy, it's not going to work. You've got a problem. Now, lots of people have observed this truth over the years. We could have, you could Google quotes about this and find some quotes. Various philosophers and people. I want to read you um, a, an article, a few quotes from an article by a guy named Mark Leary. He's a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Duke. And he wrote an article called, called this, The Psychology of Happiness. Does money make people happy? That's the question. So he's using modern research method, methods to decide if Ecclesiastes is true. And here's what he finds. Money does solve some problems in the way that it alleviates suffering and helps people feel a little bit better. That's Proverbs tells us that. And that's why the Bible tells us to be generous, because if there's people suffering because they're in poverty, we should try and help them. But then he goes on to say um, that money can alleviate some of the problems associated with poverty. But once you get to a basic level of your needs being met, it's really complicated. We always expect more money to make us happier than it does. What happens is we expect it to make us a lot happy for a long time and it makes us a little happy for a little time and then we get let down. So, for example, anybody ever got a raise and felt happy? It's a wonderful feeling. If you, if you haven't done it, I do recommend trying it. But 
But here's what he writes. He writes, the day you get your raise, you probably are happier. And maybe even the day after that. But how long does that glow last? Many people will bring them lots of happiness for a long time, but it actually brings them only a little happiness for a little time, short time. So what he's saying is the research shows it. Money can't bring you lasting happiness, more money. Or you can look at this instead of the individual level, look at it at the societal level. Listen to what he writes. If more money makes people happy, then as a society, we ought to be much happier today than people were, say, 50 or 60 years ago. Even adjusting for inflation, the average person in the United States is much better off than they were in, say, 1940. In 1940, a third of all houses in the United States still didn't have running water and indoor toilets. That's a lot. I didn't know that. But national polls show that people actually rated themselves happier in the 1940s than they do today. Now, listen to how he concludes this article. I know that it seems like it, but having more money and big screen TVs and expensive cars don't make people happier. Of course, this is something philosophers have observed for hundreds of years, but now science is showing just how right they were. Making a point here that we've made several times in Ecclesiastes, so much of modern science um, is showing us, is catching up with, what the wisdom literature of the Old Testament told us a long time ago. Money cannot satisfy your soul. The sage continues to unpack this. Look in um, Ecclesiastes 6, verse 7. We see this same idea. All the toil of a man, or all the toil of man, excuse me, is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Now this word mouth here probably means something like desire, and in a few moments, John Mark is going to unpack the types of desires that we have. But here's the thing. All humans have desires. We're filled with, with, with desires, and we're all going through life trying to satisfy our desires in a variety of ways. But all of us find that nothing on earth can ultimately satisfy us. We may achieve a little bit of happiness for a little while, but we still want more. So this raises the question, is our longing... For more happiness, a tragedy. Is our longing for more happiness a tragedy? Or said a different way, is our dissatisfaction in obtaining our desires such a bad thing? If we have these desires and we can't satisfy them, how bad is that? Is that tragic? Well, maybe and maybe not. John Stuart Mill was an English philosopher who said this. Listen to this, this quote from him. It is better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. It is better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. Now, his point is this. Humans have a nature which is more noble than pigs. Now, John Stuart Mill was an atheist, and much of what he said about human nature was wrong. So if you read him, don't just believe everything he said. However, he had a really good insight here. Human beings are different from the rest of animal life. Consider this. Pigs eat slop and they're totally satisfied. Cows can stand on a, on a, in a field and chew cud for hours and be totally satisfied. But humans eat and drink and sleep and they continue to wonder. They continue to brood. Now this reveals something great and beautiful about human nature. 
Humans have souls that yearn for something higher and better and beautiful than just what we can find in this world. Now, Chauncey has been saying something really important for life. And what he says has major implications for how you think about your own soul. So I'm going to ask you to think deeply for a second. Is that okay? Is that going to offend anybody? Put on your thinking cap, kids, over here. I want to ask you to think deeply about your soul. Because if you'll get the implication of what this text is saying, it could have a major impact on your life. I, I think that if you look into your soul, you'll find at least two categories of desires. First one. Culturally conditioned desires. What do I mean by that? I mean things that you want because you've absorbed this desire from your culture. You got it from your parents or you got it from your friends or from advertisements. You see thousands of advertisements every day and then you believe, if I would just go give these people my money, I would be happy. Right? Advertisers are very good at helping you believe that. But I call it a culturally conditioned desire because... If you went to a different continent or a different century, you would not find people caring about that stuff. So what would be examples of this? I want a cool car. We'll go back 400 years ago. Nobody cares about having a cool car. Right? I really want a cool phone. Go back 30 years ago. I know it's crazy, guys. There was no cell phone. <laughs> At least not that I had seen yet. Um, or I want a successful career. Some of you got huge pressure you've absorbed from your family about successful career. But actually, if you just go went to a different economic situation, you wouldn't feel like you had to climb the corporate ladder in order to be significant. Those are culturally conditioned desires. But there's this other thing called natural desires. Everybody say natural desires. Natural desires. Now, these are the kinds of desires we have that have been shared by human beings from every culture and throughout time. What would be basic examples of that? Hunger. Thirst. Sexual desire. These are more universal. Now, I want you to note two things about these natural desires. First, all of these natural desires correspond to some object that's real, that can satisfy the desire. I'm hungry, but there's food. I'm thirsty, but there's drink, and so on. Second thing I want you to notice, all of these desires I've named so far are also shared by other animals. Squirrels get thirsty and find water, right? So it's not unique to human beings. Now, we can go further up the hierarchy of human needs and find some other stuff, like the need for companionship, for love and kinship. And some of those would be sort of shared with the animals, but we might start seeing things set apart. But I want you to get the point here. Those natural desires are telling us something about human nature, because throughout time and across different cultures, people have them. And for every one of those natural desires, there is an object that exists in reality that corresponds to that desire. But now here's something unique about humans. We can obtain all of those desires and still long for more. In the way that Chauncey was talking about. And not only can we do that, but we all do it. Some of us have never found this longing because we're too busy trying to meet lower level things. But if you meet all those other desires, your, your soul is still going to be yearning for more. This is the universal experience of human beings. Even if we're happy. Doesn't mean that everybody's sad. Even if you're happy, you would probably say, I'm not perfectly happy. If anybody in here says, I am perfectly happy, I just don't know what to do with you. <laughs> like, look at the world. How could you be happy with perfectly happy with the way things are? You can be happy. Now, at this point, you've got to decide what are you going to do with that reality. 
Um, what most people do all across the planet is go keep trying more stuff within this finite realm of the world to satisfy us. So Peter Kreeft and Ronald Tosselli wrote about this, and here's what they said. If, if you hear this question, are you multi, uh, perfectly happy and say, you might answer and say, although I am not perfectly happy now, I believe I would be if only I had, and then you make your list. If I had a little more money, better retirement fund, my kids got into college I wanted, or if you're at a different stage in your life, if I make it to the NBA, you know, whatever your dreams are. If I get whatever this thing is that I'm longing for, then I'll be really happy. And, and then here's how they respond to that. If they say, if you say that, then here's what you can do. You can try it, and then you'll find that it won't work. Go try and achieve that thing. If you get it, you won't like it. It has been tried. This experiment has been tried over and over, and it has never satisfied in fact, I'm continuing the quote, billions of people have performed and are even now performing trillions of such experiments, desperately seeking the ever elusive satisfaction they crave. For even if they won the whole world, it would not be enough to fill one human heart. In the human soul, there is a deep longing for something more, something deeper, something better. We don't just want to see some beauty. We want eternal beauty. We don't want to just say something sweet. We want Something lastingly satisfying. We don't want to just, like you might try something a little bit better, like I just want to make the world better. Listen, if that becomes ultimate in your life, if that becomes your God, man, you can just start the clock for burnout right now. Because not only can you not solve the problems of the world, but you can't even solve the problems in your own soul. And you're going to exhaust yourself. And before long, people that you used to have empathy for are now frustrating you because you're trying to help them and they aren't getting fixed. Man, philanthropy is a horrible God. So the, the point here is you can keep trying and keep trying and keep trying, but maybe instead of I want to make the world better, what we're longing for is something deeper, like the one who can heal the whole world. We're longing for the source. It's really difficult to explain how humans alone and animal life have this yearning for transcendence. How, if, if all we are is evolution, the product of evolutionary biology, where did that come from? Now, Christian theology answers this question by saying, what we're talking about is the natural desire for God. And what it says is every human being is made in the image of God. That means we are uniquely created for relationship with God, to enjoy God. And until we find that relationship, we'll never be satisfied. But here's the thing. Humans have tried over and over and over to, through their own efforts, reach out and grab hold of that transcendence that would satisfy their souls. They've tried it in a lot of different ways, including... Serving other people, creating religions. They've done all sorts of stuff. But the only way you can get that transcendent good you're longing for, you can't achieve it through your own effort. The only way you could get it is if the source of that desire makes himself available to you. We need grace. The good news of the gospel is that it did. God, the fountain of all beauty, the fountain of all joy, the source of all love, love itself, made himself accessible to us by becoming flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And I love this verse in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. Jesus comes to a humanity that is exhausted trying to find joy and satisfaction in life within the finite realm. Anybody get exhausted trying to find joy and satisfaction and purpose in life? My goodness. Listen to what Jesus says, Matthew 11, 28 to 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In the time that we have left, we're going to move pretty quickly, but we want to unpack this idea that John Walker has been talking about. We've said that money is a horrible God, but what we just heard about is that Jesus is the perfect master. He's the perfect God, the only one we should give our lives to. So we want to compare and contrast money as a God and Jesus as a God. So follow us as we do. So Chachi told us earlier that um, if you think money is going to solve all your problems, you're going to be disappointed because as you get more money, you get new problems. Now, if you start following Jesus in life, um, the reality is all the problems in life don't go away and you do get some new problems because now he starts asking you to mortify sin in your own life. And you might face some persecution and different things. But here's the deal. If you follow Jesus, what you get is peace in the midst of all the world's pain and hope that one day he's going to set things right. Listen to how he says it in John chapter 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Money can't give you that peace or that hope, but Jesus can. Earlier, John Mark told us that if you trust money, it will hurt you. We want to say that if you trust Jesus, he can heal you. Listen to Jesus' words in Luke chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, in this passage, we find Jesus at a party with a lot of people who had made their money by exploiting people. And we hear Jesus say that he came to heal those who trusted too much in money. If you're here today and you've been trusting in money or if you've been trusting in anything else and it's led to disappointment and disillusionment and pain, Jesus wants to heal you. That's what he came for is to heal you. So trust in Jesus. Chauncey told us. Earlier, that the love of money fuels oppression in the world. But here's the thing. If instead of money being master, Jesus is my master, the exact opposite happens. Instead of loving money in a way that leads me to oppress people, now money becomes a tool for generosity. And Paul describes the way this works in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Um, He's talking to people. He's encouraging Christians to be generous to the poor. And then he says this in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. What it's saying is this. The son of God had everything in heaven. And yet he came and became poor and suffered for us on that cross so that we could be forgiven and have the riches of eternal life. Once you know him and you know that he's going to satisfy your soul. Now the Holy Spirit starts to create in your heart a desire to join him in that radical practice of generosity to bring blessing to others. Earlier we said that money can't satisfy our souls. And now we want to say that Jesus can bring deep and lasting joy to your soul. Now Paul talks about this in the book of Philippians. We just spent a few months going through earlier this summer. Paul was a man who had a lot of status. He was at the top of society in every way. He had everything he could want. And yet, in Philippians 3.8, he says something unique. Listen to him in Philippians 3.8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In other words, what he's saying is that knowing Jesus Christ as Lord is better than anything his life of status could give him. 
Jesus is the only master. It wasn't his tradition. It wasn't his pedigree. It wasn't his heritage. It wasn't any kind of riches. Jesus is the only one who could bring deep joy and contentment to his soul. Now, friends, we're almost done. Before we wrap up, I want to give you this thought. We've been saying this whole time, money is a horrible God. Money is a horrible master. But if we stop there, we're doing you a disservice. Because here's the flip side of this truth. If Jesus Christ is your master, the Bible teaches money can then become a powerful servant. It can become a tool that you use for good. This text hints at it. You can go look later, Ecclesiastes 5, 18 and 19. When it's talking about learning to receive uh, wealth and material possessions as gifts from God to be enjoyed. But this text doesn't really tell us how to do that. Ecclesiastes already told us if we try to satisfy our souls with money and the stuff we can buy, we're not going to be happy. So how do we do that? How do we use money rightly? For that, I want to point you to one last text before we finish. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now, the first part of this chapter was talking about radical contentment and was saying, listen, if you have Jesus, then you can be happy even if you're broke. I have found that to be true in my life. I have often been broke. And Jesus is enough. So if you're worrying about that, I'll tell you, that's an experiment worth trying. Jesus is enough. He's satisfying. But then it goes to the latter half of the chapter and says, what about those who are rich? Now, I would say broke and rich are relative because I know some friends in other parts of the world that would look at any of us as rich just because we live in America. So don't say, I'm not rich. This doesn't apply to me. This text is telling us some stuff that could help any of us. And let me just read you three verses. First Timothy six, verse 17 through 19 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they They take hold of that which is truly life. Now, this text tells us a few things we've already heard from Ecclesiastes. It warns us not to set our hope on money. Don't get your security from money. But it tells us instead, trust God and enjoy God's good gifts. If God gives you blessings in life, including material blessings, don't feel bad about enjoying them. Enjoy them with a thankful heart towards God. But then it says... If you really want to receive them as gifts from God, you need to learn how to steward them rightly. And if you want to say, okay, how do I do that? How do I use money as a servant? It tells you, it's just so simple. Give thanks to God and then be generous and ready to share. How simple is that? Give thanks to God and then be generous and ready to share. Don't hoard, don't try and just use it for yourself to say, God, every material blessing I have, including the ones I worked hard for, Ultimately, they're from you because you're the one that gave me that ability to work hard. So I receive them from you with thanksgiving. And now God show me instead of being mastered by my money, I want to enter into the adventure of saying, how can I take this gift you've given me and do maximum good with it and use it to bless other people? John Mark started our time earlier today asking the question, what is your highest value? And what we've been saying is that if, if your highest value is anything but Jesus, your life is going to be incredibly disappointing. But God doesn't want you to live a disappointing life. God wants you to be fulfilled in him. And so God, in his mercy and his grace, sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. To die on the cross for every time you turn away from him. And then Jesus 
died and, and he rose again from the grave. And he promises that anybody who trusts in him, he would give them his Holy Spirit. And what he does is he promises to, to, to liberate us from the slavery that every other thing that we can give our lives to will put us in. And not only that, not only will he liberate us, but he will also make us instruments of mercy to provide joy and blessing to the world. So if you haven't trusted in Jesus, we encourage you today to give your lives to him. We're going to celebrate a couple of folks who have done that today when we have our baptism in a few minutes. And if you have trusted in Jesus, again, if you find in your heart this a little bit of love for money, give it to him and surrender to him today. Again, just give him your life. Recommit to him and do that by receiving the Lord's Supper, reminding yourself, reminding all of us, it's a reminder to all of us that Jesus really is enough. Why don't you pray with us? Our Father, I thank you so much that you were not content to let us be slaves to the love of money. Thank you for the gifts of material possessions, but God, so often these things deceive us as, as if they're the ultimate good, but we want to say today, we want to confess together, is that you, Lord, are the ultimate good. That's right. You are the highest value in the universe. And we commit ourselves to you. God, help us to be people who live lives with open hands. That receive your gifts as stewardship and say, Lord, what would you have me do with this? And I pray that through us you might provide much blessing and good to a world that's looking, looking for satisfaction in their soul. God, lead us to true repentance, we pray in Christ's name.